Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. My name is Aubrey, and I will be the conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchstone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kilo. Dr. Kilo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a practicing internist. Dr. Kilo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Aubrey. Greetings and welcome, everyone, to Off in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We welcome you on this uh, holiday Wednesday, and we appreciate everybody who has signed in today, knowing that a lot of people are already off on vacation. I uh, don't know what it's like where you um, are today, but uh, here in Portland, Oregon, the highways were pretty free of traffic uh, coming in, so for those who have signed on, we really appreciate it. I'm, I'm delighted to be your moderator for today's call, uh, and we're happy that you could join us today. As you know, author in the room calls are designated to help us translate new knowledge, or what is published in a recent JAM article, into actionable steps that can, uh, that can improve uh, clinical practice and patient care. Author in the room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern time, with the next call uh, being on January 17th, and I cannot at this time tell you what article uh, we will be discussing at that time because the article is still embargoed uh, until uh, next week, but please keep your eyes and ears out uh, to both the IHI and JAMA websites uh, and to uh, next week's uh, JAMA edition uh, for information on the article we'll be discussing on January 17th. Uh, several organizations have made Arthur in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage you to do so as well by signing up regularly on a monthly basis to these calls. Today, our featured author is Dr. Louise Walter, first author on the article, PSA Screening Among Elderly Men with Limited Life Ex Expectancies from the January 15, 2006 uh, edition of JAMA, and we are delighted to have Dr. Walter with us today. Welcome, Dr. Walter. Thank you. It's great to have this opportunity. As the moderator, it's my job to help you to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Walter's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on the article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author and or authors uh, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Uh, Walter and I will help you to translate what's in this paper into applicable changes in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Walter will spend approximately 10 minutes summarizing her findings, and I'll take a, just a few minutes to draw out some implications for real-world real practices uh, and set the stage to take your questions, which we will get to at about 20 to 25 minutes after the hour. We want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. It's a great forum to get clarification on anything in the article by hearing directly from the lead author and to, uh, to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards improve the improvement of care. Your participation is not just in terms of questions and answers, but uh, we'd really like for you to offer up your experience in this area, which we know will be very helpful to others listening in and certainly to us as well. 
there are approximately 50 phone lines connected today, with generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis uh, only. And then just one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming audio or podcast. Details for that and instructions can be found under the program section of IHI.org. Uh, and prior author in the room calls are also available uh, uh, on both the IHI and JAMA websites. So let's get started. Let me again uh, introduce Dr. Walter. Uh, Dr. Louise Walter uh, completed her medical school training at Stanford, uh, and she went to University of California, San Francisco for her internal medicine residency and, and has never left, uh, and it's a wonderful place to be. She's currently a staff physician at the San Francisco VA Medical Center and assistant professor in medicine and geriatrics at UCSF. She's a ger geriatrician uh, who provides primary care to elderly patients at the San Francisco VA with major research interests around cancer screening in older patients. Uh, much of her research is focused on how age and health status affect the use and outcomes of cancer screening. Welcome again, Dr. Walter. Thank you so much. Well, to give you some background, um, I thought I'd tell people a little bit about why I decided to do this study. And because it, it happened because I was a geriatrician, I was seeing lots of elderly men in my clinic um, who were getting screening PSAs. And PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen, and it's used to screen for prostate cancer. And a typical example of someone I might see would be an elderly man with inoperable three-vessel coronary disease and heart failure who gets a PSA. It's elevated, so he gets a biopsy, and he's told he has low-grade prostate cancer. He's told not to worry about it because, you know, he has all these other health problems, but he now considers himself a cancer patient, and that's all he can think about. He wants to continue to follow PSA levels, and he spends the last few years of his life worrying about prostate cancer, which is the least of his health problems, and would never have caused him any distress if he had not been screened. So I was seeing a lot of harm from PSA screening among the elderly men in my geriatrics clinic. And I wondered how often are elderly men in poor health being screened? I mean, the guidelines don't recommend PSA screening in older men in poor health because the harms of screening, which occur immediately, outweigh the potential benefits, which may only occur you know, years in the future and currently are, are unproven. Um, for example, the American Cancer Society and the American Urological Association, they recommend annual PSA screening only if a man has a life expectancy greater than 10 years. And that's usually defined as having more than a 50% probability of living 10 years. Uh, the VA and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, feel the evidence supporting PSA is lacking for all men, and certainly men with limited life expectancies uh, should not be screened. And, and this is because the harms of PSA screening are significant. Um, PSA is less accurate in older men, which can lead to cycles of repeat testing and biopsies, resulting in psychological distress, and treatment of irrelevant cancers, which may lead to incontinence or impotence. And meanwhile, the benefit of PSA screening is unproven. I mean, the randomized controlled trials of PSA screening are ongoing, and they don't include anyone over age 75. Um, and they have yet to find a survival benefit from PSA screening, even after 12 years into the trials. So that really suggests that elderly men who have limited life expectancies are much more likely to be harmed by screening than to benefit. Therefore, the goals of the study really were to, to determine rates of PSA screening among elderly veterans age 70 and older, and to determine if PSA screening is not being done in elderly men with limited life expectancies. So this is a, a large study of 
almost 600,000 men aged 70 years and older who had an outpatient visit at a VA during 2002 and 2003. Uh, we excluded men who had a PSA for non-screening reasons, such as a history of prostate cancer, prostatectomy, history of an elevated PSA, or symptoms three months prior to the PSA, like back pain or urinary obstruction, hematuria, um, or unexplained weight loss. The main predictor variables were age at the start of 2003 and health, which was defined by a person's Charlson comorbidity score. And this is a weighted score of 19 diseases, which was based on a person's VA and Medicare claims during 2002. And higher scores are associated with worse survival. For example, men aged 80 years and older with a Charlson score of four or more, they have less than a 10% chance of living 10 years. The main outcome of the study was receipt of PSA screening in 2003, which was based on VA laboratory data and Medicare claims. And the average age of the men in our study was 77. 90% uh, were white and 72% were married. 30% of the men had a Charleston score of zero and were considered in best health, and 15% had a Charleston score of four or more and were considered in worst health. Um, for example, the group in worst health included men who had, for example, a combination of congestive heart failure, which gives you a point, COPD gives you a point, diabetes gets you a point, stroke is a point, so if you add those up, that's the four points. So again, the men in worst health were quite sick. And what we found is that overall rates of PSA screening were high, with 56% of elderly veterans having a PSA test in 2003, and 68% of screened veterans had this PSA performed at a VA, whereas 32% had this PSA billed to Medicare. And then even among veterans age 80 years and older in worst health, PSA screening remained high with 41% of elderly sick veterans having a PSA test in 2003. And we did find that PSA rates decreased with advancing age, ranging from 64% of men age 70 to 74 being screened to 36% for men age 85 and older, but that still means that over a third of men 85 and older had a screening PSA test, even though less than 8% of these men will live 10 years. And we also found that among men of similar ages, screening PSA rates did not decline with worsening health. For example, you know, among men aged 85 and older, the PSA rate was slightly higher for men in worst health compared to men in best health. 36% of men 85 and older in worst health were screened compared to 34% of those in best health. And then we also found that many non-clinical factors affected PSA screening rates in older men more than health. For example, PSA rates varied by race, ranging from 57% in whites to 46% in blacks, and from 58% in married men to 49% in unmarried men. But I mean, the main finding is that PSA screening rates are high across the board in elderly veterans. And to confirm that we are not missing some major reason for PSA testing that might explain these high rates, uh, we actually reviewed 100 randomly selected charts of men in our study who had a PSA test. And 87% of the charts indicated that the PSA was a screening test. The other 13% of non-screening tests were done to follow up an elevated PSA from the past or to work up symptoms um, such as weight loss or BPH symptoms that were missed by the claims. However, I think overall our chart review confirmed that the majority of PSA tests in our study were sent for screening purposes. So in summary, I think despite the fact that guidelines do not recommend PSA screening in elderly men in poor health, many elderly veterans are getting PSA screening tests, even those with less than a 10% chance of living 10 years. 
So the bottom line is that PSA screening rates among elderly men with limited life expectancies should be much lower than current practice to avoid harming these men with unnecessary tests and procedures. So the change in clinical practice would be to reduce inappropriate PSA screening. And to do this, I think we need to um, develop more specific screening guidelines that are more explicit about how life expectancy is defined and provide tools to help clinicians identify men with limited life expectancies who are most likely to be harmed by screening, considering both age and the presence of severe disease. And I think we also need to educate the public about the downsides of PSA testing, especially in elderly men with significant health problems. I mean, prior studies have shown that educating men about PSA screening reduced their interest in screening and led to fewer PSA tests. And I think this in turn would allow efforts and time to be directed toward things that have more immediate benefits and greater evidence that they actually benefit elderly men. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Walter. A wonderful summary of a very, I think, practical uh, and elegant study uh, for which I think we are all indebted to you and your colleagues for uh, having, having performed. We now want to turn to what the research suggests about changes in clinical practice, changes that uh, you and I uh, and Dr. Walter, clinicians, healthcare professionals at the front line, what we might consider given the conclusions of this article. Uh, so where would we begin if we want to turn these findings into better patient care? Now, one of the things that Dr. Walter alluded to, and well, I think we'd like to emphasize this as we start off with the question and answer session, uh, is to the fact that this article is certainly about PSA screening, but in fact it's about much more than that. When we, one of the things we've learned from the author in the room series of calls in general uh, is how to think about uh, the uh, any particular article within a greater context of uh, clinical medicine. In this case, again, while the article is uh, about PSA screening, the reality is that it's about how do we think differently about preventive measures as we uh, grow older and certainly in the elderly. And that is indeed what Dr. Walter and her colleagues uh, spend their uh, days thinking about and doing research on. So while we hope we will talk about PSA screening in, in, uh, in particular, we also want to talk more generally about how should we be changing our expectations and the expectations of our patients around screening uh, as we get older, particularly uh, for those people who become increasingly frail. And what Dr. Walter and colleagues has done, I think, so eloquently uh, for us is to take a look at PSA screening which is controversial at the outset, and look at a group of patients for whom I think we would all agree uh, screening would, does not do them a clinical benefit, and she's explored uh, the epidemiology of the use of PSA testing in that population. So we're not going to turn to questions from your callers. Uh, we would like both your questions, but also your comments. We invite you to uh, tell us what you've been doing about uh, this and similar issues around screening and elderly patients uh, in your uh, clinical arena. Feel free to share your examples and your experiences, or feel free to ask questions. And I will now uh, turn it back to uh, Aubrey for uh, the first question. Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touchstone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be opened so that you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero, one on your touchstone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key. There will be one moment for questions. 
And our first question will come from Sethan Health Regional Region. Excuse me. Please go ahead. And if you could, as you're, as you're getting ready to ask your question, if you could just uh, tell us who you are and, again, uh, reiterate where you come from, that would be helpful for us. Go ahead. Sorry, did you say Saskatoon Health Region? Well, you're on. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, it's Keyshore Visvanathan. I'm a urologist in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Great. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Walter, uh, first of all, I think I have to congratulate you on your bravery. If I remember right, several years ago, a couple of internists from San Francisco uh, published an op-ed piece in one of your newspapers or pillory for uh, doubting the gospel of PSA. Uh, have you had any public response from prostate cancer support groups uh, about this? You know, that's a very interesting question because I have not. I've only received very received very positive um, feedback that we really need to, you know, think what we're doing. Um, and I, I think even PSA advocates are not advocating for, you know, screening in elderly men with multiple health problems. I, it, that just seems like something that is less controversial than, you know, about PSA screening in younger men, which I think is more controversial. But at least if you even look at the urological guidelines and at least some of the um, editorials that I've read, um, even PSA advocates are not advocating for PSA screening in elderly men with limited life expectancy. So I've actually only received positive in, um, feedback at this point. Great. That, that was a bit of a tangential question, but my real questions are, first of all, I wonder if you have a feel for what the sequelae were uh, in PSA testing in this population. Uh, to have a feel for what percentage of men who had an abnormal PSA went on to have biopsies. Um, from, from most people's point of view, if you have the only reason to do a PSA is if you're going to then let the dominoes fall and do a biopsy and then do treatment. Uh, so that my first question is uh, whether you have an idea, are these men going on to have biopsies done? And the second uh, question that I have is, in your chart review, was it your impression that the PSA testing was being done as a default, that is, just as part of battery of screening, or was there actually uh, a request by the men to have the PSA testing done? And do you have any idea or comments on how much information was given to the men and whether informed consent is necessary before doing this testing? Thank you. Great question. So as far as what happens to the men who were screened, that is actually uh, what we're, we're planning on a study that we're currently working on right now to look at what happens to them. I do know that over 20% of them had an elevated PSA, um, and then we're going to follow that and find out what happened to them. But that's an ongoing study to find out well, what happens when you screen people according to age and health. Um, as far as our chart review, it did appear that the vast majority of PSAs were being done as a default because they, they usually appeared within the lab section of the chart without really any explanation. Occasionally they fell under the healthcare maintenance tab um, in a progress note, but in general it seemed like they were just sort of being, you know, put with the rest of their blood tests that were being done. And we really did look to see how often it was documented that the patient actually requested a test, and it was very rare. Only 4% of the charts had that documented. Of course, maybe people requested it and the physician did not document that it was requested, but certainly um, if you look at the chart, it, it did not indicate that a lot of men, a lot of elderly men in poor health were actually asking for this test. Um, and then whether it was an informed decision, occasionally the chart would say, you know, had a long discussion, uh, but again, this is usually the men that 
it was like the 4% of men that asked for it, um, there was some indication that they had some discussion. But the vast majority, the PSA was simply appearing within the lab section of the chart with no explanation. Now, within the, um, the VA computer system, there, uh -huh. there are no set, uh, to my knowledge, and you can clarify this for us, uh, Dr. Walter, there is no set of routine labs that someone can just click on and produce a, an order. Someone would have to specifically pick out a PSA from a list of tests and specifically order that intentionally. Is that true? That is correct, yes. So, uh, so in general, there there is no set of routine labs that would be ordered depending on your age or, or whatnot. So no, but it would show up like yeah. along with a cholesterol test. Exactly. They would get that, up, but someone had to select that in addition. Um, but it sort of appeared in that same vein of preventive, you know, blood tests that were being sent. Right. Um, the one of the things you elucidated on in your comments, which I think is fascinating, is not just the downsides. Again, which you're you're studying the. Uh, the medical downsides in terms of how many people went on to biopsy and, and whatnot. Are you going to be studying, or what are your thoughts on the mental health downsides of screening? You mentioned it, and I think it would be worth exploring a little bit in more detail. I think that would be a great study. Um, there are a few people who have looked at what does an elevated PSA, you know, mean to people. And you know, it's very individual. Um, they've certainly shown that it can cause psychological distress. Um, I'm more also familiar with I mean, any of these negative screening or any of these um, screening tests that you get that initially are positive. I know the mammography literature has a lot of information about you know, people even six months after they had a positive test and told they don't have cancer are still very worried about um, cancer and about getting it. Um, and I know there's been a few studies looking at that for prostate cancer, but certainly be, I don't, none of those studies that I recall were actually done in older men or men in poor health, and I, I don't know how you know, if that would be any different, it would be certainly something to look at. Great. Well, I have a bunch of questions I'd love to ask you, but we should get back to the, <laughs> to the callers. <laughs> Next call. And at this time, we don't have any other questions or comments in queue. As a reminder, to do so, it's zero one on your touchstone phone. Thank you, Aubrey. So, uh, Dr. Walter, um, your uh, study was done by looking at limited life ex expectancy and using the Charleston comorbidity scores. Um, which uh, my experience is it's a relatively challenging to, thing to do in clinical practice. As, uh, as a geriatrician, somebody who's thought a lot about this, how should we be thinking about screening differently as our, uh, as our patients age? Ought we to be using tools like the Charleston Index? Uh, and, uh, and how should that be changing the way we think about screening in general? Well, I do think it's important to think about prognosis. So I think the sort of components I think about when um, people are considering a screening test, um, when clinicians are thinking, should I recommend a screening test, is to think about a person's prognosis as well as what we know about potential benefits and potential harms of the test and patient preferences. Um, but I do think benefits and harms are very much should be considered in the context of a person's prognosis because someone who has a limited prognosis is much more likely to be harmed. So as far as how do you think about prognosis, um, I certainly think we could pay a lot more attention in our uh, medical education and in the textbooks and providing um, clinicians with better ideas of what, you know, if someone has a certain disease, what, what does that mean prognostically. Um, for me, I oftentimes use the um, U.S. life tables as anchors and to really think about, well, I know in the general U.S. population at age 75 is when life expectancy for men is 10 years. And then I think about, well, is this a person that's particularly healthy? You know, if they're 
75 and above? Is this a really healthy person who still would likely have a 10-year life expectancy? Or is this someone who has a, you know, a severe illnesses like congestive heart failure or dementia or, you know, on dialysis? These are all things that would, you know, shift someone's um, life expectancy or prognosis downward. So I sort of use the life tables to get sort of a general anchor and then decide is this person exceptionally healthy that would put them way above the average life expectancy? Is this someone who is particularly unhealthy that with all kinds of, um, you know, severe comorbid illnesses that would shift them below? And knowing that they have less than a 10-year life expectancy, they are much more likely to be harmed by PSA screening and should not be screened. And, and I highly, you know, and I'll basically tell them that I really feel that they're more likely to be harmed than to be benefited. In, um, in, in addition to, again, you use the Charleston comorbidity mm -hmm. scores, but that is really not, that's, is my assumption correct? It's not that's a not what I would use clinically. We were using that in the research really to try and get at extremes in health status. So trying to find people who had sort of, you know, four or more major comorbid problems who we have, you know, reasonable data to show that their life expectancy is very limited. To even look at people who are 85 and above with four or more of these severe diseases to see if screening was, you know, was much less in that group um, and, and basically found that, Charles, that the health, even if they had multiple comorbid illnesses, that it wasn't decreasing. So we were sort of looking at extremes who I, I think a physician would need to use the Charleston Comorbidity Index to know that someone who is 85 and above who has, you know, uh, congestive heart failure and uh, bad kidney disease and, you know, had a stroke and, the, you know, things that give you that four points. Um, would be pretty clear that that person would have uh, a limited prognosis. Sure. The um, now we all know that uh, the VA really has been a leader not only in quality but <laughs> certainly in IT as well with their uh, with their integrated system. Uh, how has the article stimulated conversation within the VA? One one thing to do with this is just to send out a note to all of your primary care docs in particular and uh, encourage them to stop. PSA screening at uh, the appropriate time if they mm -hmm. believe in PSA screening. Uh, and we know that such uh, endeavors, such interventions don't have a very good effect on changing behavior. Uh, any ideas as to how the VA, uh, uh, possibly given their IT system, is going to use this study to alter behavior? You know, I don't, I don't know that. I certainly know locally it's been used at our local VA. Um, to make, it actually has been passed around to all the primary care physicians to say, really think about when you're, you know, if you are considering screening an older man who's in poor health, really think about it because um, the urology clinic actually was the one who sent it around because they don't want to be doing biopsies on some of these people because um, they know they're going to be causing more harm. So it's sort of a, uh, a stimulus to sort of make people sort of really think about PSA in a different context. It's not just like in, you know, other things that you disorder without necessarily having a, an informed decision like cholesterol. Um, I think the other thing that I'm interested in doing is, is trying to identify or try and come up with maybe if you, like quality indicators or performance measures that actually, um, you know, really reward or, or you know, look for people that are not doing things in people that they not, should not be doing things in. So, for example, um, I don't know if we can the VA has this information technology system that we could potentially, you know, if we identify sort of these extremes in, you know, elderly, very sick men who PSA rates should be very low, theoretically one could look and see, well, are screening rates 
across various facilities in this group low as they should be. Because right now, all the quality indicators really look at the reverse side. They really look at, well, our cancer screening rates, you know, you want to, they encourage you to do something to be high, to, to have a high cancer screening rate, whereas I haven't seen any of these quality indicators look at, you know, encouraging people to, do, to not do something when it's appropriate not to do something. So I think that would be another avenue that the VA could pursue. Now you mentioned uh, outcome measures, and one of the things I think we're all fascinated by these days is uh, the trend towards pay-for-performance, mm -hmm. of which there's been uh, certainly a lot written about. And as someone from yourself, someone from California, uh, which is the state that probably has taken the lead for real pay-for-performance, where there's real dollars uh, exchanging hands, it is very interesting, I think, to think about your study from a larger perspective of screening and how we do measure our performance, and you, mm -hmm. uh, you certainly mentioned that. I'm not aware of uh, any uh, of the payers or those who are running pay-for-performance programs that try to use such uh, risk measures or uh, estimates of uh, life expectancy to change the way that they measure performance, and I know that's something that uh, that will be of high concern to a lot of folks, not just reading your your study, but I think if uh, if you look down into folks who are 65 or 70, who many might use routine screening for, and they had a limited life expectancy, if we were to apply something like the Charleston Index, it probably is not appropriate for us to be screening those individuals mm -hmm. either. Uh, and yet, uh, I think what drives a lot of a lot of practice is the the, the knowledge that we are being judged, we are being watched, we're being measured. Uh, and therefore, I should just do these things, not for the, necessarily for the sake of the patient, but for the sake of, of the, uh, the measurement system. Mm -hmm. uh, any thoughts on that or any knowledge as to uh, how studies like this are changing performance measurement systems? Well, I don't know how it's been changing, but I certainly think it needs to change. I think we need to come up with quality indicators that are more measuring the complexity of medical decision-making and not the one-size-fits-all approach that, you know, no matter if you walk through the door, you should get this type of screening or the checkbox kind of thing, but really reward people that have made a thoughtful decision, have had an informed discussion, um, you know, have considered this person's um, prognosis um, and not include those people. I mean, there's many ways to do it. I mean, one is to, you know, see if there's a way to document if the person's having an informed discussion. Um, another one is, you know, who all quality measures and, you know, have a denominator of people that they, you know, who, who are the eligible people to be um, in the performance measure and, you know, is there ways to exclude people if you're going to be encouraging screening, are there ways to exclude people from that denominator who really shouldn't be um, being encouraged to be screened? and. Is there a way to look at sort of the flip side and include those people in another measurement where you look to see, well, you know, hopefully rates are high in, you know, say for a screening test that we actually know that there's good data to support, say, you know, something should be high in healthy folks who have a long life expectancy. And then on the flip side, rates should be relatively low in people um, who have limited life expectancies and try and look at it on both sides. Whereas right now, I think the only quality indicators are really looking at you know, did you do something in this population that we consider eligible, but we really didn't look to see whether it would be indicated, you know, for these people, um, and we didn't look to see whether the person, you know, preferred the test. We didn't look to see whether the, the clinician had an informed discussion and the patient said, I didn't want it. 
you know, all those things sort of count against um, performance measures. So it's, you know, it encourages people just to, to send people for these tests. And I think we need to do better. Yeah, it's interesting. Really interesting area to explore. Mm -hmm. um, and as, as, as you know, I could talk to you a lot about this because <laughs> I find it a fascinating area, and I do have the pleasure of talking to you offline as well. Let's see if uh, we have any more comments or questions or experiences from the audience. Aubrey? We do. There are two questions or comments in queue at this time, and our next one will come from Healthcare Quality Strategies. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, you were uh, conservative in your and, and focused in your study on men with poor prognosis. I'm just wondering about men with uh, with a better prognosis. If you have a 75-year-old healthy man who, let's say, might have a life expectancy of 15 years, um, what are the chances of somebody like that who has a, a quote new prostate cancer, so something that got picked up for the first time at that age, assuming they'd been screened previously? What are the chances of that becoming life-threatening or even clinically significant in the next 15 years? So I'm looking at it from the biological side of things. Great. And is this Dr. Miller? Yes, it is. Yes, sir. Okay. Sure. I mean, I think definitely that's an interesting question. I think the before I answer that, I think the I guess the the key question to try and get about whether that person's likely to benefit is whether PSA works in the first place. So, Good point. Um, so I think I think it just depends. I mean, certainly, um, I agree that it's it is more controversial and probably much more preference driven. Um, the decision of whether to screen someone's PSA or not in men who have significant life expectancies because you are left with this unknown of whether PSA actually works or not. And so you have some people that say, you know, I want to do this test even though I know there's no benefit, you know, I don't know that it has any benefit, but I'm very worried about prostate cancer and it could potentially affect me and I want to do anything I can to avoid that and I realize there are harms. And then you have people on the flip side who say, my gosh, this is an unproven test, you know, it's it has definite harms. Um, why would I want to get this test? So, to me, that's right. That's much more where preferences drive the decision. Whereas in older men who are very who are unhealthy, I think you really, you know, we really should tell people, you know, there you are much more likely to be harmed from this. And you know, I recommend not doing this. And we should be doing all these other things instead. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but that's sort of how I think about um, PSA screening in healthy men who have the prognosis that they potentially could benefit if PSA actually does work. Um, I actually think, I mean, PSA tends to identify more indolent, slow-growing cancers and, you know, miss the really aggressive cancers that would likely get somebody in the next couple years. So, I And I think that was my concern that, I, you know, and I, I'm not an expert in this by any means. I just, it seems to me that it, there are probably fewer of those aggressive cancers that that um, begin in people once they're in their 70s. So should they be screened at all? Um, you know, mammography, I don't think people have too much of a concern setting an upper age limit for screening for somewhat the same reason, um, whether it's based on, you know, that if somebody who's 80 years old and healthy gets breast cancer, it may not grow as quickly, it may not be as clinically significant as a 45-year-old who gets that cancer. Right. And I, it's, I think we need um, a lot more data on that. I've actually been amazed at how little information we have on how cancers change as we get older, both in breast cancer and in prostate cancer. I think it would be interesting, you know, what is prostate, you know, what 
is the likelihood that someone who's 85 or 90 would get a very aggressive prostate cancer. Um, and, and I doubt, again, if they have a very aggressive prostate cancer, PSA is unlikely to change that outcome. Um, right. Okay. Dr. Miller, what do you... Thank you very much. Dr. Miller, before you hang up, or before you uh, go back on, uh, on the mute, uh, what are you going to do with this study? What are you, you going to do with the results? Um, I'm not in clinical practice. I'm in, in uh, quality improvement work. Um, I would hope that I'll be able to use this to argue for thoughtful screening, um, whether it's on the basis of recommendations, as you discussed, for when people uh, should be screened, or whether it's individual practitioners who are making decisions. Um, and I think Dr. Walter's point about uh, when, when there's measurement, you, there needs to be a lot of thought of, well, how does that affect my denominator? Um, if I exclude somebody for a very good reason, am I going to get penalized? You want people ideally to think, if I exclude somebody for a very good reason, hopefully I will, I will get rewarded for that. Now, Dr. Walter, we are, um, I think we are, we are challenged in two different directions. One, we have a pretty significant cadre of elderly folks who are reaching this, their 70s um, uh, and well into their 70s who are pretty darn healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, we have a large population who are in that same age group who, are, who have a very large number of chronic conditions and comorbidities. And so we're going to be challenged to provide to design a uh, easy set of uh, recommendations for the entire group without doing something like measuring life expectancies or, or uh, using some such test to help guide us. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Would you recommend? And it, and it has generally been true that at about age 70, we do change the way in general we think about screening. Mammogram, mammography should stop around that time. PSA screening, if you believe in it, should stop around that time, uh, sort of as gross generalizations. Uh, and uh, you know, colonoscopy should probably stop around that, around that time. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? So I guess I, I certainly think age is a very important prognostic factor, and it's certainly something that should factor into whether you think someone has uh, a long enough prognosis to benefit from all these tests. But I also hesitate on making sort of just basing guidelines or decisions on whether to screen someone or not on age because as I'm sure we all have in clinical practice, I mean, we have the, you know, the 75-year-old who's hiking and running and very active and has, you know, as they were alluding to in the other call, you know, a very long life expectancy. And then we have, you know, a 70-year-old in a nursing home who's got severe dementia and who's very frail and certainly prevention um, for those two individuals should be very different. Um, so I, I've argued in my work against sort of using age alone as the one-size-fits-all approach to how you decide what to do for somebody, but to really think more about, you know, physiologic age, I guess, which is, you know, incorporating some of their health status and, and functioning into your decisions about how likely they are, again, to to have a life expectancy that would allow them to benefit. So I know that makes guidelines and recommendations much more complex, but I do think good care of older people does require this complexity. And, um, and I, you know, I certainly hope that we can come up with measures that would help people better um, figure out prognostically who's you know, most likely to benefit. But I think if we even started at some of these extremes where we looked at people who you know, most people wouldn't be arguing that they are, have a limited life expectancy. 
you know, let's focus on their medical conditions that we know they have and not be distracting from their care by sending them for all kinds of tests for things that, you know, by and large they probably don't have. Um, and so I guess that's my sort of approach in geriatrics is I, it's hard for me to say that there's, you can just do it based on age that you should stop mammography or based on age you start colonoscopy. I think it actually is age and a combination of your health problems and your functioning um, that make it more or less likely for you to benefit or, or be harmed. Mm. Yeah, real challenges as we, exactly. as we have the baby boomers aging. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Aubrey, next comment or question? Okay, our next question or comment will come from San Francisco General Hospital. Please go ahead. Hi, Louise, this is Edgar. Carol <laughs> Weesey from San Francisco General Hospital. Great discussion. It's really it's just fantastic. I think you answered my question. I, I, I put the number in a, a few minutes ago, but it has to do with whether or not PSA is any part at all of quality measures at the VA in any age group, and I was wondering if that might have sort of spilled over in, into the older veterans. It's a good question. It's interesting. PSA screening is not a performance measure at the VA. At the time that we looked at the time our study was being done, um, educating men age 50 to 69 about the pros and cons of PSA screening was a performance measure or a quality indicator. But it's interesting, the quality indicator um, was just about education about PSA, and it did not include men over 70. That being said, I mean, the VA does have a lot of quality indicators that, you know, do apply to older folks like um, colon cancer screening, for example, which, you know, there's really no... Um, it, there was no age cutoff or anything like that, and so perhaps some of the, you know, enthusiasm about, you know, encouraging high screening rates in a variety of other cancer areas um, could have spilled over to PSA, but we are not getting clinical alerts. There are not um, specific performance measures that reward people for actually doing a PSA. Now, Edgar, you are a medical director, is that correct? Uh, yes, we're, we're starting an acute care for elders unit here at San Francisco General Hospital. Right, so you've been, you're, you're, you're going into the area of acute care, in which case this study is not necessarily applicable. But in your, in your general work, how would this study change? Uh, obviously, it's going to change your thinking. How would you help to systematize the lessons in this study? Well, as I was listening to the presentation by Dr. Walter, I, my sense was the most important thing for me was her clinical approach. I found that very, very, very useful to be using uh, in the outpatient setting where I, where I do have a clinic. So that was uh, most helpful. Um, we haven't looked at that kind of data here at San Francisco General Hospital, but uh, it, it does raise the question, you know, here in a, in a resource-strapped environment, uh, are we in fact doing the same kind of uh, screening that may have little or, uh, little or no value? So for me, this is something that I would discuss with our uh, clinic director. Right. Now, I can't recall if uh, if your particular clinic has an electronic record or not? It, it has a, a bare-bones one, not, bare nothing, bones nothing at all like what the VA has. Right, and so you wonder uh, how we might use our electronic health records uh, or paper charts, if we're uh, still there, to help us to understand uh, and have the right conversation, the right shared decision-making with our patients about, about this, which brings up really two issues. How do we use our electronic health records and what type of shared decision-making tools are available. Optimally, with shared decision-making, that there would be some, uh, some input by the patient or that was drawn from the chart that would look at comorbidities and would create a, uh, expected, uh, a life expectancy for the patient, and that would change 
the way that the individual interacted with the shared decision-making. And that is pretty futuristic. I know we have some shared decision-making tools, but they probably don't go to that level of detail. I suspect, uh, Dr. Walter, that the type of shared decision-making we're talking about is really just basically having a conversation with the patient, not really an IT tool at this time. Right. I actually think, I mean, it just, it just seems like if we even just, if this article can even make people just think a little bit more about, you know, I really should you know, have a discussion with somebody about the risk of PSA screening and the benefit, and I shouldn't just check it and send the person because, you know, it can have serious consequences in, in someone who has no chance of benefit and only can be harmed. So if it even makes people just um, pause and, not, and consider PSA in a different realm from cholesterol testing, I think that would be a big benefit. Um, so, I mean, that's one thing is to sort of stimulate people's thinking that this is a, you know, this is a much different test in that it has so much less um, data about how it, whether it works or not, and especially in, um, it has such a long lag time between when, it, when you do it to when it, it has any chance of benefiting the person that I think prognosis is just such an important factor in that. Sure. Aubrey, anybody else in the queue? Not at this time. So um, as I think about our own practice and our own uh, record keeping. We have an electronic record, and I will use the example of lipid screening. Uh, the way we do lipid screening is to use uh, the um, uh, National Cholesterol Education Program and the ATP3 guidelines mm -hmm. on risk stratification. And we risk stratify everybody into high risk, moderate risk, and uh, low risk as uh, we are supposed to be doing, although as I understand, not a whole lot of practices around the country do in aggregate for their patients. Many physicians try to do it individu by individual patients, but very few do it in aggregate. And we try to take that, we do take that risk category and we put it on their electronic problem list and then we use that every time we talk to the patient about their cholesterol targets. Uh, and it certainly, I think, helps us to reduce the amount of over-testing and over-treatment. As we get new patients, we find a lot of folks who fit into a low-risk category who've been on a statin for uh, many, many years because they believe that it is going to benefit them without really understanding the data and without really understanding what their risk category is. And so what I'm beginning to envision is as our patients age that they have a uh, some sort of comorbidity screen or a life expectancy screen on some regular basis, which again, we might put into our to our problem list, and that would help to guide our thinking about prevention and maybe even our performance measurement. And uh, I understand that that may be a little bit down the road, but hopefully not too far. Are there other things other than the Charleston Index that, that are getting close to being used uh, clinically for things like this, Dr. Walter, or are there things in development? I, th I mean, there are certainly things in development. I, I think it would be very interesting to provide people with, um, again, some risk estimates for life expectancy, just as we do risk estimates for other things. Um, and you can start sort of on the simple um, thing of just even if people looked at U.S. life tables and just to kind of get an idea of population-wise, you know, I'm amazed how many people don't know, you know, like, what's the average life expectancy for an 80-year-old woman, you know, in, in the U.S.? And most people are, you know, will vastly usually underestimate um, how long people live. Um, so I think sort of even having some of that more available that you could click on or, or, or use on the electronic medical record would be very helpful. Uh, certainly a lot of um, colleagues um, here at the San Francisco VA are working on trying to develop 
prognostic indices in older um, adults, trying to incorporate some of the more complex things that aren't necessarily measured in claims data like I'm using, but things like functional status, um, which I think is a very good measure of severity of disease and a very good marker of, of uh, life expectancy and prognosis. But to think about ways to incorporate that into a medical record, I mean, certainly you have to show that it would be worth the added, to, you know, the added time to put that in. But certainly, my take on looking at functional status in older people is that it's one of the best markers for um, prognosis, and you know, would probably, and I, I think would be very helpful to understand person, a person's baseline risk or baseline functioning in general. So that would be another thing to sort of argue that maybe a nurse or, or you know some of the other folks when they're checking in a patient could um, you know look and see what their functional status is regarding their activities of daily living or their instrumental activities of daily living and uh, incorporate that and then maybe you know in the future we could come up with um, you know prognostic indices that are pretty accurate using age and functional status and comorbidities to come up with uh, you know something that people could then use or incorporate with their clinical intuition, because I, I don't think any any scale or index is going to say, you know, this is definitely what it is and this is definitely what you should do. I think they've shown that using prognostic indices, which, you know, in concert with a physician's, you know, intuition or physician judgment, um, those that's sort of the most accurate um, way of predicting someone's prognosis. Mm. So I think sort of using... I think it would be very helpful to have it on the on the on the, the computer so that someone could say, oh, you know, this person is looking not so good, you know, and they have all these things, um, and sort of help, I think, help the physician feel maybe more comfortable about talking about prognosis with somebody um, as a way of kind of gauging their response. Um, I think some people feel very uncomfortable with prognosis and maybe I'm going to be wrong, and if you had some type of subjective thing, that could help you think, oh, okay, I'm not that far off, or, you know, I could... You know, I, I'm thinking about this in a, in a way, and maybe we should be addressing this with the patient and really trying to figure out what what the goals of care are, what this, what is important to this person. So, and I uh, I believe that U.S. life tables can be found on the CDC website under the National Center for Health Statistics. That is correct. And uh, there is, I think, the most recent is a U.S. life tables 2003. Correct. Uh, and that will lay it all out for you. Right. And also, I, I hate to plug another article of mine, but I have a 2001 JAMA article that actually shows different life expectancy quartiles according to age. So you can kind of see what the average life expectancy is and what life expectancy would be for very healthy elderly people versus very unhealthy elderly people. Fantastic. Um, Aubrey, any other calls in the queue? There are not at this time. Great. Uh, Louise, as we uh, begin to wind up the call, any uh, last comments or thoughts? No, I think we've kind of covered a lot of this. I think we have as well. And uh, I think it is, it is a fascinating and challenging area, and I, I really thank you for helping to elucidate it with us with such, with such a you know, really practical and yet ele elegant study at the same time. So that is all the time we have for questions. It's been a wonderful discussion of these issues. And again, I thank Dr. Walter and all those who uh, called in with both their comments and their questions. Just a reminder that our next author in the call room call uh, will be the third Wednesday is the third Wednesday of every month, the next one being on January 17th, 
at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, cannot release the author or the article uh, that we will be discussing, but it will be available on both the IHI and JAMA websites uh, as of next week, and it will be in next week's edition of JAMA as well. Uh, JAMA is, or Author in the Room is sponsored by both JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It is an interactive series of conference calls designated to accelerate changes that can improve care. And we appreciate all of you joining us today. And thank you very much, Dr. Walter, for your participation. Thank you. Good day.